It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. No, you are not listening to this at 1.5 speed on your podcast app. It's just that I'm in such a hurry to get going with the conversation with one of my favorite people in the world. Um, and I want to note that if you start from, I don't know, December 20th, the gender balance of guests on this podcast is just outstandingly progressive. So with that said, um, uh, my favorite columnist, I got to be careful. I have some friends who are also columnists at, at the Washington Post, but one of my favorite columnists in the world, um, um, she's so smart that every time you shake her hands, you get a paper cut, uh, none other than uh, Megan McArdle. Megan, welcome back to The Remnant. Well, thanks for having me and uh, very pleased to help uh, be one of your token women, Jonna. I didn't say you were token. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're, you've also brought up the IQ on this podcast considerably, so that's good too. And I haven't even talked about your dogs yet. So, um, uh, spoiler, I get complaints when we open shows talking about dogs. It's, it's likely to happen by the end. So when you hear us talking about dogs, you can stop listening then. Yes. Um, so we were recording this on the day of the Grand Holly Tacker, which is the term for uh, ceremonial combat uh, from Mork from Orc, um, uh, where he challenged Fonz to a Holly Tacker, but we won't get into that. Um, but for Kevin McCarthy trying to become speaker and we were talking about how neither of us are too, uh, deep in the weeds on it to, um, talk about it intelligently, but also we decided that if we try to talk about it, events would overtake this podcast by the time it came out. So we're really not going to talk about it very much except to say, I, I want to float by you my, um, uh, my, th- a theory that I just wrote about in the LA Times and see what you think about it. And then we'll go on to things like cryptocurrency and stuff that I don't know anything about. Um, as you know, I'm a big believer that Congress sucks and doesn't work, but it's supposed to be the most powerful branch. It's the first branch, uh, more powerful than all the other branches. Uh, the phrase co-equal branches is a Nixonian invention that needs to be purged from our thinking and from our columns. Um, uh, and so I thought it was very interesting when Nancy Pelosi uh, did her sort of uh, victory lap, um, stepping down from leadership. An enormous number of people talked about how she was certainly the best speaker in the modern era and maybe the best speaker ever. And my problem with this is I agree she was very effective. She's a good politician. She's good at running her caucus. She was good at playing by the rules of how Congress currently works. And I'm not trying to take any of that away from her. Uh, if you want to make her the, your feminist icon, be my guest. That's all fine. Um, but she is one of the chief villains in the story of how Congress now sucks. 
insofar as the way Congress works, uh, I, I can actually speak in these terms because you, you speak in these terms as well. Con- legislating is supposed to be a process of discovery, right? It's supposed to be bottom generated, like in Schoolhouse Rock, there's a problem with bus stops near schools and a problem in a local area bubbles up. It's brought to Washington. They debate it. They have hearings. There's a process of horse trading and, and competing testimony and argumentation that's on public view, that's in private. And it bubbles up and it is presented through the committee system all the way to the top and, and it's voted on. And that way you have buy-in from stakeholders, from the public, the press has had time to vet it and all the rest. Congress now works the opposite way where they call the four corners leadership, the speaker, the, the minority, the, the, either the, the majority whip or the minority whip and the, the majority leader of the Senate and whatever, these four leaders, they get together and they decide what to bring down like Moses with the tablets to the Congress. And then they vote on it and it's a take or to leave it. And they don't pass budgets anymore. They don't propose budgets anymore. The omnibus was, um, you know, a crime against uh, man and nature. Um, and your, 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 your other half, I wouldn't want to say better half. Peter would could talk about that at great length. Uh, and, you can go, we can call him my better half. I, I would agree with that statement. Um, and, uh, um, and my view is that Congress is supposed to be the place where politics happens, right? It soaks up political discord, political disagreement, uh, uh, different factions hammer out issues on display in a gladiatorial arena and they legislate and, um, Congress doesn't legislate anymore. And because Congress is supposed to soak up all this political energy, all this political sewage and bile and channel it to a productive ends, it now spills out into the culture, into other institutions. When Congress can't actually do things, even on a party line basis, it just asks the president to do things, even if they're unconstitutional. Um, and uh, it national, you know, Tip O'Neill used to say politics is local. Uh, it no longer is because co- Congress's dysfunction makes politics national. And so all this talk about Kevin McCarthy, who I think deserves everything he gets, how, oh, oh my gosh, he's going to be a weak speaker, which is like people talk about as if like that's a terrifying thing. Um, maybe it's a good thing to have a weak speaker. Um, I'm not saying this is not a brief for Kevin McCarthy. I'm just saying that better that, you know, committee chairs reassert authority, better that Congress actually you know, pick up, seize some of the power back from leadership rather than wait for it to be granted to them. So my rant is over. What make you of all of this? What are my thoughts about that? So I have a lot of thoughts about this. One is that I love the theory of how Congress is supposed to work. But I would say that, you know, my understanding of like how H, how FDR worked, for example, is that, you know, there were like four guys in Congress he needed to get on board. And if he did that, it wasn't that like they did anything he said, but they would tell him what could be done and then they would get it done. Mm-hmm, okay. Right. That there was. So that's one thing. And, you know, the, the, the thing that we take for granted as kind of natural, my understanding is that it is. Um, and again, I'm not a, a not a history expert, but my understanding is that it's kind of a creation of the post Nixon era where um, they basically they overthrow that leadership and they institute all of these committees and subcommittees and everyone gets an appointment and, you know, um, and it proliferates grassroots opportunities for people to do stuff. And of course that seems natural to you because it's around the time you and I were born. Um, it seems, it seems natural to me too, but then that Newt Gingrich starts the process of then re-centralizing power in part because it's, 
somewhat hard to get anything done in the old Congress. Um, or it's hard to, let me say this a different way, it's, it's hard to exert party discipline. So I think that that's one, one sort of thought I have. Another thought that I have is that some of this, I think, is just, it's out of Congress. Right, so one thing is C-SPAN, weirdly. Um, having cameras on everything... Well, it's good for transparency. I mean, I, I've really changed my mind about this in the last 20 years. You know, if you'd asked me in 2005 about transparency, I'd be like, transparency is awesome. Trans- everything is solved by more transparency. And it turns out that that's actually not true. <laughs> there are situations where transparency makes things worse. Um, for example, you know, and, you know, some of them are really obvious, right? If you are negotiating a peace treaty, you don't really want a lot of transparency <laughs> about the process. You don't want the other side to know what your limits are, et cetera. Negotiations almost always have to be in secret because you have to be putting up stakeholders in your coalition's interests on the bargaining table. And you can't let them know you're doing that until you have something to present to them as a finished package. Right. And so while there were certainly committee hearings back in the day that were done for the cameras, the most infamous example is obviously the House and American Activities Committee, right, where these guys are grandstanding for cameras. There are mob investigations where they're grandstanding for the cameras. Um. But in general, those committee hearings used to be, they used to be a forum for stuff actually happening. And I I had a fascinating experience of watching the late Mark Kleiman, um, who is, uh, was a giant in criminal justice and public policy, watching him testify to the Pennsylvania state legislature. And here's the thing about the Pennsylvania state legislature, like those clips aren't going viral. No one cares. And so it was really interesting to watch how a state legislature committee, which is, you know, in many ways comprised of the junior members of the political party, people who are aspiring to get to Congress someday. Um, Not all of them by any means, but a lot of them. They're asking intelligent questions. He is answering them. There is a process of finding out information. That doesn't happen now, right? If you watch a committee hearing, in general, the point of a committee hearing is not for the congressional members to get information. It is for them to generate viral sound clips. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a problem. Num- the another problem I think is just that politics is being nationalized because of the media. It's not even because of Congress. It's because the media now is centralized in New York and Washington, and local outlets are dying. And so, whereas forty years ago, right, things you know, you and I probably don't care a lot about ethanol subsidies except that they're execrable and should be gotten rid of. But in Iowa, they're a major deal. And so in Iowa papers, right, there would be a lot about this. And then, you know, if there's something wrong in the corn market, that's going to show up in the papers that will then, you know, your congressman will hear about it. It will be carried to Washington. There will be a lot of debate. People who might be affected on the other side of whatever they want to do for the corn market are also going to be debating. And that's all over because there's no forum for those debates to happen anymore. And so I agree with you. It's a problem, right? The the way Congress is now functioning is extremely problematic on, on multiple levels. I wonder how much of it is that they are victims of structural forces beyond their control. And I also wonder if that isn't something that Congress kind of wants to converge to a few people holding power because the other way is so inefficient and ponderous, Right. Um, and if what we see in history, um, and I'm, I'm worse on the 19th century, so I won't venture there, but is, is a kind of tendency for things to converge and then to get blown, the system to get blown up when it gets too centralized 
and develops its own problems because it, then it's more like a parliamentary system. But like, we don't have a mechanism for votes of no confidence. Although my understanding is that now I guess they want one. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the, the, it, the things tend to converge to a parliamentary system because it's actually really, really hard to manage a 435 way negotiation. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's one thing I, I agree with and there's a little bit I disagree with the, um, on the transparency thing, I, I'm constantly in search of analogies to make the, because people freak out when you tell them government needs more secrecy. Yes. And this is probably not a great analogy for the masses, but I know it'll work for you. Um, one of the worst. I am, I am above the, <laughs> the Picayune <laughs> concerns of the, the no, no, plebs. Like, one of the absolute worst things as a writer is, uh, as a columnist, is to be writing with somebody like an editor literally looking over your shoulder (laughs) saying, you know, no, that doesn't work there. You know, fix that. Or that's not really where you're going. Right. My friend, Ron Bailey, who I I love dearly used to be my boss when I was a television producer and we'd be making fixes to scripts and he would stand behind me and say, "Mm, are you really going to use that word? And (laughs) I would have to say, Ron, go away. And my point is, is that editors, and the public deserve total transparency of the finished product. Here's what we did. Yes. Right? Here's what we have to show you. But they can't be like nickel and diming you while you're making the sausage, right? Because it's just, it's, it's, it's a way to screw up the sausage. You can't, right. you literally can't do the process whenever you have all the eyes on you. And I always tell people, you know, the constitution was written in a secretive smoke filled room, right? They didn't have the right to do what they did. They just did it in secret. And then they said, Hey, look what we came up with. And then you could judge it by what they came up with. But if you, if you were going to judge it by the process, you say, this is outrageous. You have no authority to do this. That kind of thing. Um, I, I disagree a little bit on the, the, the history of like the new deal stuff. Yeah. There were, there were barons of the house and the Senate, right? There were these committee chairmen who had real, real power. And there were a lot of problems with that, particularly on civil rights, which I totally agree with. Right. Um, and, and I always think it's important to point out to people that the Democratic barons of the Senate were not Southern conservatives. They were Southern progressive, uh, most of them. They were Southern progressives who are also racist, which yeah. is just a different thing um, than what we're told. Anyway, but, you know, Paul Ryan will make the case, and he had very limited success in trying to do this, but he at least said the right words, um, and I think he was sincere in it, is that it's crazy for the speaker and a bunch of 28-year-olds to, um, uh, on her staff, to write legislation leaving out committee chairs who spend all week thinking about this rather than staffers who spend 30, 30 minutes, or leaders who spend 30 minutes a week thinking about stuff, right? I mean, delegating to expert committees just makes a lot of sense as a process. And um, um, and on the last point, I, I, I kind of agree, and I, kind of disagree in that the, yeah, Congress may want it this way, but part of the reasons why Congress wants it this way is because it's attracting the kind of boobs and jackasses who don't actually care about legislating anymore. Like Joe Santos doesn't want to go to Washington and be a legislator. He wants <laughs> to go to Washington to use this platform for his own self aggrandizement Yeah. Yeah. Matt, Matt Gates is a human Twitter feed. Like he's, he's literally said like to be on TV is to govern. Right. And so when Congress no longer does its job properly, the people who are interested in doing that job aren't going to be interested in it. Instead, you're just going to get the people who want to use it as an opportunity to be a pundit. 
And so it's the self-fulfilling prophecy. Kind of. So let me say, I mean, a few things. Like when I say Congress wants to be that way, I think of it more in like kind of like the market for search wants to be, wants to, wants to have one company doing search, mm-hmm. right? It's efficient in that way. And it might just be that like Congress is going to tend this way. It's not the individuals want to just, you're going to have a tendency. No, but I absolutely agree with you. Obviously, like the breakdown of the committee system, the fact that it's gotten so centralized, it's too far. Right. It is it has gone far too far in that direction. It is certainly due for a reset. Um, I just don't know how far it can go in the other direction. Right. Like I, I, I have genuine questions about that. But I really think it's interesting that you bring up journalism for a few reasons. Um, one is just the amusing. Did you see the movie She Said? I have not. I can't yeah, no one else did either. Don't feel bad. Yeah. Uh, this is I'm married to a movie critic. And so uh, my better half, I get to go see all sorts of movies that most people have not seen. I just saw Damien Chazelle's new amazing, messy flop um, last night. And uh, I can recommend it. But I'm also I don't think that many people are going to what, see what's it. What's it called? It's called Babylon. It is a three-hour homage to the transition from silent to uh, to talkies. Oh, I've seen and trailers with for that, the obvious yeah. subtext of this is really about streaming. Um, uh-huh. And there's like some weird anachronistic style choices and all sorts of things. But I, it's also just, I mean, it's extravagant and ambitious. And it was it was fun to watch. But anyway, so she said is the movie about the New York Times. Um, takedown of Harvey Weinstein. And uh, is it Weinstein or Weinstein? I think it's Weinstein. But Weinstein, okay. Weinstein. No, no, it might be Weinstein. I don't know. <laughs> the Steinstein thing. It's, you know, if you're from New York, you spend a lot of time sort of debating it. It's one of the best riffs in, in Young Frankenstein. It's Frankenstein. <laughs> uh. <laughs> oh my gosh, I've thought about that for years. Um, anyway, so like, you know, there's a bunch of that. That movie didn't do well. I think it was it had script problems. It was too small. I mean, that you know, you you take this story that's about this like this evil guy in in Hollywood, and you make it about whether journalists can get people on the record. Yeah. Um. I did. I don't think there's a huge audience for that. But it was. It was. I mean, some of the things that are funny to a journalist is, for example, the actress who plays Megan Tui is constantly just like she's walking through the Times lobby and like a source calls her. And she doesn't do the thing I would do, which is drop to the ground and, you know, pull out an envelope and like scrawl on it in my own blood. She's just like, no, yeah, I'll remember this. Like just walking around (laughs) talking on the phone. But the other thing is that for dramatic purposes, they constantly have people typing, like everyone's standing around while someone types. And like that is done. I have done that too, where like I'm standing there with my editor and, you know, we're making a small correction. But they're like writing the story in there and they have everyone standing right. It's like, do they only have one license for their CMS? Like, really? <laughs> because it is, it's a terrible process when you're doing it. I hate, I hate doing things that way. But I think also, right, like Twitter is an example of how transparency made journalism worse in a lot sure. of ways, right? People started performing for their buds on Twitter in a way like, and they're... <sighs> I have these conversations with journalists who are to my left and they're like, they're nice people. And believe it or not, conservatives, they have a lot of integrity. They want to be good, but of course they want it. They want to do, tell the truth. They want to do the right stories, right? They're, they're much better than conservatives think. Um, but here's the thing, like, obviously like they're human beings and they have biases, just like I have biases. And, you know, when your biases dominate your group, things are going to, you know, you're going to miss a few things. You're going to tend to miss things more that are that that 
are congruent with your biases. So I, you know, I, I have a lot of, I do the standard conservative media criticism, throat clearing over. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what happened is that first of all, people just start talking to their buds, like, but they're in public and they don't act like yeah. they're in public. And like, I did this when I started blogging where I said some stuff that I really should not have said. It was not like, I thought they were funny jokes and it was me being mm-hmm. edgy and it wasn't funny. And I, it was just dumb. It was me being dumb because I didn't think of this as like in public. I thought of this as like me talking to my friends at three in the morning in a bar. I had many similar stories. Yes, yes. exactly. Right. You know, and the problem is that journalism developed a culture of everyone talking to their friends at three in the morning with a bar. And like the entire reading public is watching. And then all of these people to my left are like, it's really outrageous that conservatives don't trust us. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, in, oh, would you trust anyone who talked about you like this? They're watching you all the time. They're watching you, right? Um, it gave people the, ex- the incentive to build their own personal brand at the expense of the institution and often very in very costly ways for the institution that is then, you know, institutions had to respond in some cases by firing someone for their own self-protection. I didn't like that. I protested against it in a lot of ways. You, you know, you see internal revolts happening on Twitter, which is crazy. Um, but it also just, I think, you know, it, it enabled these kind of weird groupthink things to happen. And then everyone had to write the same story because the groupthink has taken over and like, we can all see it happening in real time. And that transparency was not good. It wasn't good for the internal process. It wasn't, it actually, it made it harder to develop a good truth telling instinct to like, take your time with stories, to be careful, et cetera. People tended to rush on to things. Um, with an early take that was bad because it was all playing out in real time. Um, and so there's a, there's an area where I think that transparency, again, has just turned out to not be good for the institution of journalism and not good for the practice of journalism either. And I understand the argument that, well, but marginalized voices got to come up and like get some power. And I think that that is true in some cases, but I often think, and people are starting to have this reassessment of like, Often it wasn't, it was like marginalized voices. It was the most toxic person in your organization would then lead these, you know, public rebellions and everyone would be kind of frightened of them. And would, and this is what people are now saying at nonprofits, right? Because it has destroyed the liberal, non-pro- the progressive nonprofit sector, right? The left, these nonprofits have basically ground to a halt because it's all, everyone's terrified of, of having a staff revolt on, on Twitter. Um, and so that has been bad. And I think in general, we need to internalize a, more, a lot more discussions in Congress. Um, for all that I love, I love being able to watch, you know, when, when the CEO of, uh, of FTX came, you know, the, not Sam Bankman-Fried, the guy who crashed it, but the guy who is now overseeing the bankruptcy. When he came to testify, it was amazing that I could watch that. Although even then, like there were a lot of questions that were grandstanding. Sam Bankman-Fried, the former CEO, was supposed to come testify and then got arrested and didn't. And annoyingly, like a bunch of uh, Congress people had written questions for him. And then he wasn't there. So they just asked them of the guy who's shepherding the bankruptcy, you know, like, how dare you promote this as a product for poor people, (laughs) right? Like, well... And he was like, yeah, you're right. This is a bad product for poor people, right? Like, it was <laughs> totally crazy. Like, it was performative rather than informational. Right. But there was an opportunity there for them to actually get a lot of information, for them to actually learn things. I learned things from that hearing, which is now, sadly, unusual for these things. They are much more often um, an opportunity to, to get a few viral clips out and to be filmed yelling at someone who your constituents don't like. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 last, my last one on the transparency thing, transparency thing is I, I have 
sort of unwritten rule that if you have a proposed reform for an institution, the first question you should ask is, what would this reform do to my own institution? Yeah. Right? Uh, forget ideology stuff. Right. And I understand government is different, uh, monopoly on violence and tax power, yada, yada, yada. But like there is not a sane, which is not the same thing as the saying there isn't a, one who would advocate this. But there's not a sane editor of a major publication in the world that would say, you know, what we should do. We should live stream all of our editorial meetings. <laughs> right. Like let's. Should we cover this? No, I think that guy's a jackass, you know, but you know, but you got to butter him up because he's a good source. And, you know, no one, no one would think that's a smart idea. Right. Yeah. But somehow the same people who think who would instantaneously recognize the stupidity of having cameras in the editorial meeting or cameras showing editors going over a reporter's, you know, filings right. saying, oh, this is garbage. Why does he always make these mistakes? Blah, 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 you know, that kind of thing. Like, uh, they completely changed lenses in their, uh, you know, in their mental acuity centers saying all of a sudden, you're really weird for thinking that we shouldn't have maximum transparency of the Supreme Court's deliberations, of, of Congress, of congressional committees, you know, whatever. And it's just, it's dumb. And, and I don't, it, it, it's just, it's, it's funny how people can change their perspective their common sense when it applies to someone out an institution outside of their coalition or their interest. It's sort of like what's I, oh, I keep mangling this. The British, the British philosopher who said, you know, everybody's conservative about the things they know. Yes. I mean, it's fascinating watching people because, you know, with the Supreme court leaker who leaked the Dobbs decision, it's not clear whether that was leaked by a conservative or a liberal. And it's fascinating watching people change their opinion about the leak just based on who at the moment looks more likely as the culprit. Right? <laughs> like it's, it's like, obviously, if it hurts your side, we shouldn't leak it. But no, I mean, like, look, I make mistakes in my writing. I know that you never do, Jonah, but never. never. I mean, I have actually the, the thing about me is I'm an incredibly neurotic person. I'm a really, really, really neurotic person. Um, so that when I put anything up that has any facts in it. I then lie awake, like, what if I got something wrong? And so I don't have a lot of corrections because I always catch them because I go over my copy like five times. But, you know, they'll get caught in copy. They'll get caught right. by my editor. And then, you know, do I want... I mean, fine, I'm saying it, so I guess I'm being transparent. But, you know, do you want people to understand that, like, the arc of the piece was correct, some detail was incorrect, you caught that incorrect detail, it didn't change the meaning, but, or do you, you know, does that make readers think, oh, well, this person doesn't know what they're doing, right? Like, it's, um, it's, in general, we need a certain amount of mystery <laughs> for everything, right? Do you want to see what your doctors are doing behind the scenes? No, no, you don't, <laughs> right? Do you want to see the, the radiation techs joking about, like, you know, their patient who was unattractive or something? You know, I'm sure it happens, Let's live stream everybody's therapy session. That's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> like, I would just rather not know. There are things that I would rather not know. And like, there's, you know, people, I remember I, 20 years ago, maybe. No, I mean, like less than 20, but I, I posted a picture on my blog and someone was like, you know that someone is going to like use that as a pinup, right? And I was mm -hmm. like, I don't need to know that, right? Like, I don't care what they're doing or like, you know, you grew up in New York City, right? You undress in front of an op of, of a window with an, no coverings yeah, on it. Yeah. And people are like, there, there could be someone with binoculars. And I'm like, I'm never going to meet that person. I just, right. as long as I don't know, it's fine. <laughs> right? You, you just have to accept a certain amount of mystery in the world. And I think we have lost, the internet has robbed us of that mystery.
Yeah, and also, frankly, when I'm dressing in front of a window, there might be someone with binoculars once. (laughs) 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 Well, I mean, the funny funny thing is that, like, now I live in a row house. My husband is actually more comfortable with having uncovered windows because he grew up in a small town in Florida. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like... I can see everyone. I know who they are. I don't, that, that's too much. I don't want anyone being able to see my house. All right. So you mentioned uh, Sam Blankman Freed. Mm. Uh, when I use that as a, um, a segue, you wrote a column about this, about why, about how the crypto crash really just has kind of not mattered. Um, what, what's the, what's the, the thesis? Other than it didn't matter. Like, why did it matter? Well, the reason that that's interesting is that I've now spent since 2009, 2010, um, talking to crypto people about whether crypto was going to be the next big thing. Is it going to replace money? Is it going to replace gold as a hedge against inflation? Is it going to do this? Is it going to do that? Is it going to be the new layer for, you know, NFTs and so forth? And... If it's going to be the next big thing, we certainly have no... And I, I've been unskeptical. I've been skeptical for that whole time. But just because I didn't... I see what the the benefit is. If you are in China, if you're in a, or another country with strong currency controls and you want to get money out. Mm-hmm. But I don't see what the benefit is for someone in, in America. Right? Unless you want to buy drugs. But the problem is that the government knows that it's good for buying drugs and if it becomes very good for buying drugs they will just make it impossible to trans to to translate your cryptocurrency into real cash um and if if no one has watched ozark i highly recommend the season the the series stuck the landing but the first season of ozark is actually like some of the best explanations of the ways in which the government has made it extremely hard to turn your drug money into legitimate money you can spend um, and, you know, Jason Bateman just has this great monologue. Uh, someone steals his cash at some point, and he has this great monologue. He's like, yeah, you think you're you're set for life now, right? Well, try depositing that in a bank. You can't, because if it, there's a deposit over 10000 the bank will flag it. If you deposit 9900 the bank will flag Like, If you do that multiple times, the bank will notice and flag it. If you buy a car, it will get flagged, right? Like, everything that you think you can do with a big bucket of cash, you can't actually do without triggering the interest of authorities. Um they can do something similar to crypto. And so I just think it's a very limited utility currency. Most people don't want to, you know, buy large amounts of drugs or child porn. Um, and most people do not, you know, I mean, outside of China, do not want to smuggle money out of their currency-controlled country. And so, you know, there are a variety of pushbacks. It was going to be a hedge against inflation. Well, we had inflation and, and, and crypto went down. Um, and... You know, then we had a big financial meltdown in this market, which is ongoing. Um, you know, there's quest, still a lot of questions about whether the remaining big exchanges are solvent, whether they're, you know, um, and it just didn't matter. There was no contagion. And if this is actually an important, systemically important financial product, I would have expected to see more contagion. What it looks like is it was a way for a small number of crypto nerds to speculate on crypto. It just does not seem like it has developed any connections whatsoever to the larger financial system um, that matter. You know, like you can literally translate dollars or euros into to crypto. But other than that, it's like Beanie Babies, basically. When the Beanie Baby market melts down, that is very sad for everyone who owned the Beanie, Beanie Babies. But it just didn't, you know, it's not like the Fed was like, well, we'd better be on this and provide yeah. some liquidity to support the critical 
I don't know. I don't actually remember Beanie Babies very well. What were the big? Well, Beanie Babies is a good example. There was there were. Um, I remember the the first tulip bulb thing from my high school years was Gazelle's glasses. Do you remember that? No. It's like this non-prescription glasses that people thought were really, really, I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, Then various sneakers, obviously. Yes. In grade school, it was those puffy stickers. uh, Oh, yeah. Oh, and well, Um, and for us too, I was, I was a girl. So the, I doubt you had this, but uh, Chinese jacks, that's probably like, you're probably not supposed to call that. They were loops and, you know, uh they came in different, they were plastic loops. They came in different colors. And so you could, you could make your own like custom color sets. Um, They were, they were a huge thing. See, this is a constant danger is just spiraling into New York Gen X nostalgia. Um, (laughs) But so moving back to crypto for a second, um, like, one of the most eye-opening pieces I read at the beginning of the Ukraine invasion was The Economist did this piece um, on how, I think it was The Economist, um, how it turned out that crypto was really good for Ukraine and really bad for Russia. And in contrast to everyone's expectations, right? You would think that like the Russians would get around sanctions, the oligarchs would get their money out and all that kind of stuff. And for the reasons you're sort of explaining, it turns out that it's actually really hard to yeah. like hide your money in crypto and get it converted back into anything <laughs> other than, you know, and meanwhile, the Ukrainians, it allowed them, there were a whole bunch of vendors who needed, they needed like sleeping bags from and, right. and rice and flour and that kind of stuff. And they all agreed to take crypto, which they normally wouldn't because it was just faster for Ukraine. So it was actually, it was this weird kind of like counterintuitive thing. And that, that, if the whole argument, like when you and you know this crowd, because again, your 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 husband also lives in libertarian world. The crypto people they talk about it like it's gold, right? Like it's like salt pills and and antibiotics. That like it's this thing you need for when the system crashes. And like it turns out, Ukraine. This was exactly that kind of moment. And it turns out the crypto was you know. Uh, like not good for all of the rich people in Russia who wanted to like get out of the system. And to me, that just sort of took the the bloom off the rose in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, I think there is a, like my, my, the, the, the one point where my libertarian soul, like partly just cause I, I like nifty things, right. I, mm-hmm. I would kind of in some ways like it to work better than it does. Um, partly because I like nifty things and it's kind of cool. And if, if people have not read uh, Matt Levine's amazing 30,000, it's like 35,000 word, he, he got an entire uh, issue of Business Week to just exp- explain crypto. And if you have questions hmm. about crypto, this is the one thing you should read. Um, it'll take you a few hours, but it is more than worth it. And it's just like, it, it's a nifty technology. Um, and it's sort of mathematically elegant. But also because one thing I do worry about is the ways in which not just the government, but now private actors are now pushing down into, um, you know, what's known in, in, in uh, tech as the stack. Um, so they've pushed down below. And, and if you think about this, so like, can Twitter censor people? Well, I mean, conservatives would say no, but I think like, yes, they own the platform and they, they can decide. And, and the fact is that conservatives actually want a lot of censorship to happen on Twitter, right? They, they want um, child porn to be kept off Twitter. We all have a good, we all have a, a strong interest in keeping like, they don't want their kids 
or themselves indeed, probably, I can't speak for all, all conservative Twitter users, but probably they don't want to be like hanging out on Twitter at work and suddenly get fed porn, right? They want Twitter to throttle that back. Um, they want Twitter to take spam off. And that's, that's speech, but no one wants it. Um, and so I think, yes, can Twitter sort of moderate these things? I think, yes, they can. Um, but then you get down other deeper layers. So famously, right, Cloudflare, which protects people against denial of service attacks, which is a kind of uh, malicious attack that you can make on a server that will basically make it impossible for that server to communicate with the outside world. Um, Cloudflare provides the best protection. Cloudflare has a couple of times just decided like, no, I don't like you anymore. I'm going to let hackers take your site down with with, uh, denial of service attacks. And they've done it with the Daily Stormer, which is the like Nazi website. You know, am I sad? The flagship publication yeah, the of, flag- <laughs> of, of neo-Nazis. Yes. Yes. It's where you aspire to write as a, not, as a young That's Nazi right. journalist. Um, you're willing to do book reviews at first, but you know, <laughs> oh, one of these days you're going to get the cover. <laughs> oh no, we're going to get canceled. We have to stop joking about the Daily Stormer. Like, am I sad that the Daily Stormer found it hard to stay up? Not really, but the precedent is a little weird, right? That like, if I don't like you, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to enable the hackers to destroy your website. Mm-hmm. Um, it has now been done with Kiwi Farms, allegedly for uh, facilitating the stalking of a trans woman. Uh, I believe I don't actually, I didn't follow this controversy very quick, very closely, but a trans woman, um, some sort of influencer like TikTok or YouTube. I, I don't know whatever these young folks get up to. Right. But also, it's been done with payments. Right. So Colin Wright, who writes um, a this is not particularly an issue with trans or other issues, but these are the the ones that happen to come to mind. Um, Colin Wright, who writes a a Substack, had had people had uh, about mostly about gender critical issues from a gender critical perspective, I should say. He had PayPal just shut down his account and Etsy and like, you know, why is Etsy deciding what... And it wasn't like he was selling deeply offensive messages, right? It wasn't like he was selling things that were like, you know, kill trans people or something. And they just shut him down. They decided that he was unacceptable. And there are real questions about whether we really want our payment providers and our crafted goods vendors to be deciding what people are allowed to say. And crypto prevents that how? Well, it it basically creates a payment network that they can't shut down, right? Like uh-huh. it creates a payment network that, I mean, we're at the moment, we're, we're really lucky, actually. So Patrick Collison, who runs Stripe, is very committed to free speech and has just said, like, we're not making, this is not our judgment to make. You know, Twitter is, you know, has the right to moderate their platforms as they see fit, but we're not doing this. So like, but our... I, I love Patrick Olson. He's great, <laughs> right? I, I, Stripe's a great company. But it worries me that our payment architecture, that, that freedom of speech is to some extent dependent on whether one billionaire happens to be a good guy. Um, I think that that shouldn't be. I think we should have a principle that, you know what, your bank, this has happened to Jennifer Rebecca Morris, who got, um, who runs a small social conservative website, her bank, the, the Southern Poverty Law Center put her on a hate group list, and suddenly her bank refused to deal with her, she couldn't take donations, right? That is not where those decisions should be made. I am fine with the government, if they want to come in and shut down a drug lord, uh, from, you know, or, or the Russian oligarchs or whatever, fine, those 
decisions are democratically accountable. But I don't really just want like Bank of New York deciding that from now on or Visa deciding that from now on, you know, these groups can't take payments. Um, and that I think is, is somewhere where I look at Bitcoin and I'm like, I don't know, maybe we would need it. But I think that there are real, still remain real issues with with getting that infrastructure to a point where anyone would use it to make payments. It would have the, the, the problems with the stack, the problems with payment processors just shutting down people that they ideologically don't like, they would have to get pretty extreme before crypto would, I think, become a viable alternative to that. Yeah, I mean, I just, I, I mean, I think it's a really good point. And, you know, I mean, there's a reason why it says on a dollar bill, this is good for all debts, public and private, right? Presumably, if you walked down to Etsy and paid in cash, they couldn't like stop me from doing that. Well, no, Etsy, but, Etsy just took his merch off. I mean, I, yeah, and I, I think yeah. I looked at it. I should say I have, I don't think I, I, it's been a while and I didn't, I like glanced at it. So maybe the merch was more offensive than I'm remembering. I should go back and check. But, um, but my understanding is it, 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 they were some fairly anodyne messages if you didn't know the source. Right. But um, uh, yeah, my only point is I didn't mean to bring up Etsy or drag that up. I just meant like it, there should be a means of payment electronically that is indistinguishable from the universal acceptability of cash. Well, and central banks are looking into basically making digital dollars, digital euros, et cetera. And ironically, the collapse of of FTX is probably going to hamper those efforts, Mm -hmm. even though arguably the fact that crypto can't be trusted makes them more necessary. Um, But now it's in bad odor, right? Now no one wants to be like, hey... (laughs) What about U.S.-backed cryptocurrency? Well, the thing is, like, I'm way out of my uh, area of knowledge on this stuff, but don't we already have digital dollars in the sense that my understanding is that it's only like 5 or 10% of all the dollars in the world are actually in form of paper money? Is that just just an accounting fiction that's different than a digital dollar? Well, this would be more like something where you can, instead of, you don't have to have an intermediary, right? You could, uh-huh. that this thing would, would sort of, this is also not my area of expertise. This is just how I understand what? it would work. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it, there's all sorts of interesting things because I don't know if you know that most of the, a lot of, a big chunk of the currency that we print actually isn't in the US. We get this, it just goes abroad and it circulates abroad in places where the currency isn't worth that much. And so the United States gets a fairly trivial, but still, um, still it's there. It's what's called seniorage, which is you print money and you get goods, the government gets goods for it. And then they don't have to, you know, the money, the pieces of paper aren't inherently valuable. So it's essentially like taxes. Now with inflation, when you do hyperinflation, this is how like Weimar Germany was attempting to pay for um, its war debt was by wildly inflating its currency, right? It, the, it's very hard to make any significant amount of money off of seniorage um, because the moment that you do that, you cause inflation and then people don't want to take, they don't want to give you real goods and services in exchange for your increasingly worthless paper. Um, but the United States has managed the neat trick of collecting a, a small, but you know, nonetheless, it's nice to have uh, amount of seniorage on our currency, on our physical currency, because it circulates abroad. And I, I sort of wonder if that would also be true of digital dollars. Um, but unknowable <laughs> at the yeah, moment. I mean, I, I mean, the, the, so this is just a factual uh, point of information. It seemed at the beginning of the FTX implosion that there were people calling for at least on Twitter, I saw people pointing to it, calling for bailouts. 
That seems to have gone nowhere, right? I mean, there's oh, yeah, no, one... no, no, there's zero no, percent chance. That, so for one thing, I don't I don't know that the U.S. exchange is going to end up being solvent, but it's going to be closer to solvent than other bits of the system because it was regulated. Um, and uh, you won't hear a lot of kind words about regulation coming from Megan McArdle, but um, I think there's a, the Wild West part that was happening in the Bahamas was clearly in much worse shape than the than the U.S. part because regulators would not let you, you know, just go hog right. wild with customer funds in the same way. Um, and so the, the, the obvious people to bail it out are the U.S. government and the U.S. government just has no reason to. The U.S., uh, I'm sure some people got around it, but U.S. domiciled residents were not allowed. We're not supposed to be trading on the master exchange um, we're supposed to be trading in FTX.us and FTX.us is just in better shape. And also, but I mean, it goes back to, like, I think there was an Ontario teachers fund that has gotten in real trouble with this. But in general, this is just not, it's not like 2008, where not only do you have the huge risk of, huge risk of contagion. I really do think I, I get in a lot of trouble with my fellow libertarians for saying this, but I, I think if the government had not stepped in with bank bailouts, we would have looked at a Great Depression style, 25% unemployment, you know, huge numbers of people with their life savings completely wiped out um, because everything would have gone down and it would have taken, you know, a decade to recover. Um, and, and in fact, like the only way we actually knew how to get out of, we, we know reliably gets you out of the Great Depression is having World War II, which I think is in general a bad idea and we should not do again. Um, so I think the bailouts worked, but, you know, th- there's also then the pension funds that are, that are implicated in all of this. There's everyone's retirement savings that are implicated. None of that is true with crypto. There are individuals who took unwise plunges. Most of them, as far as I can tell, and this is entirely anecdotal, so open to correction, but most of them seem to be like young men. Mm-hmm. And I feel bad for them. I have made bad investment decisions. So like I worked in tech in the 90s, not tech, I was in IT. Um, I didn't do like the fancy high, high revenue stuff. I did the boring, like making, you know, bank server systems work. Um, but because of that, I figured like, oh, tech is what I know. I'll invest my whole 401k in that. <laughs> and it took... <laughs> You know, I forget when I pulled even, but it was like 20 years to what I had put into this thing because I'm investing in the late 90s. It's the dot-com bubble. It all collapses. Um, You know, I have been there and I feel your pain. And then I went to business school, took on $100,000 worth of student loans and ended up as a journalist. I mean, like series of really bad financial decisions there. (laughs) It took a long time to reverse. Um, but it's not the same as when like old people are losing their life savings and now they're going to be down at the stop and shop pricing cat food. Um, which isn't even like it's cat food's actually quite expensive and that's not Mm -hmm. even a really good alternative anymore. Um, and so there just isn't that same impetus for, you know, there, I don't think there ever was going to be, this is a really limited niche product for people who enjoyed gambling on the future of cryptocurrencies. I think they were very unwise about it. I don't, I never understood what the theory of the case was. Um, but I also, even now, I do understand the kind of little germ of what they were thinking, which is like, I don't see, I've been saying now for 10 years, I don't get it. I don't see how this is going to work. No one who's pitching it seems to have a very good sense of what money does. 
And also the rationale keeps shifting, right? Like initially it was going to be for payments and then it was going to be a store of value like gold. And then it was going to be this intermediate layer that was going to allow you to do like, it was going to be like Visa and MasterCard. There were all of these different theories of it and none of them seemed to have worked out. And that said, right, like, in 1720, I'm sure there are a lot of people. So, for those who don't know, there's a big, there's a big in the 1720s. There was a big uh, it's called the South Sea Bubble. Um, wonderful stories about like people pitching joint stock companies for like for the com- the construction of a wonderful project and no one to know what it is. Which actually turns out, interestingly, this is like the urban legend of the South Sea Bubble. Um, it was done as a joke by a newspaper. Mm-hmm. It was a parody, but they got a bunch of people to send the money in. (laughs) They earned like 50 pounds off of this thing and then had to send it back, right? Um, And anyway, like, I'm sure there were a lot of people in like 1729 being like, you know, the joint stock company. Mm -hmm. What's it really good for? And it turns out that actually you need corporations in order to amass the kind of capital that you need to build a modern industrial economy. But like, it wasn't necessarily all that obvious in like how critical that piece would come to a piece of the economic and financial architecture that thing would come to be you know 150 years later and so i i have i maintain like a tiny bit of agnosticism like maybe there is some use for this stuff that i haven't figured out and i think that that was what was animating a lot of this it's like i don't know i can't tell if any of it's going to be useful better buy a lot of it and like we'll just hope that you know i hit on the the thing that turns out to be you know like that in the casino there's the big slot machine with the numbers over it where there's like $8 million and it almost never pays off, but you're, you're, you still put a dollar in just, just in case. Yeah. Gotta be in it to win it. No, I mean, look, I, 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 um, as someone who buys Powerball tickets more than he should, uh, I have an appreciation of that segment. I buy power di- Powerball tickets, by the way, uh, when the pot is over, I want to say 900 million, there's some number, uh-huh. they're positive expected value. And when that happens, I, I put 20 or $40 into the Powerball because like, it's yeah. a very low likelihood of payoff, but the expected value is positive. So it is not entirely irrational to buy power, Powerball tickets. You just have to wait until, you know, it's... Uh, There's also the psychological advantage of... I don't know if psychological is the wrong word, but um, it gives you a more concrete excuse to talk to your spouse about what you would do with your winnings. Um, <laughs> yes. It's yes. not purely hypothetical. Well, right? so in my case, unfortunately, my spouse really, really hates gambling. Uh-huh. So I don't love gambling. Like I will, I like micro stakes gambling. If uh-huh. I could find a five cent blackjack table in Vegas, I would play there. I like, I like to have a scorekeeping, but I do not like to gamble any amount of money that I can't afford to lose. It makes me crazy. My, my spouse does not even like gambling amounts of money that he can't afford to lose. He, he doesn't want to do the thing where you're like, here's $100. I would have spent this on my bar tab. I'm going to pretend it flew out the window on the way to the casino. I mean, this is the money I'm putting down. And when I lose it, I'm walking away. Mm-hmm. He just hates gambling. And so I can't talk to him, but I do talk to my family members about what I would... I mean, like my mom and sister will let me sit and fantasize about all of the things that I would do with my massive Powerball winnings. And it's a lot of fun. Does he hate it so much that he'd be mad at you if you won No, no, no. He's like, it's $20, right? Like, is he going to get mad at me for for taking the $20 that I could have blown on like, you know, drugstore makeup? No, but he doesn't like, he just doesn't enjoy it. And whereas I just, at the moments when it's expected value positive, I really enjoy imagining my first class world tour and my beautiful home on the coast of Maine. 
Yeah, there's a lot of that. We, there's a lot of real estate porn that my wife and I indulge in when this top top is. Although, like, actually, the funny thing is, I remember someone because I I bought Powerball tickets recently because <laughs> it went expected value positive, and I was talking to my coworker about it, and she was like, "What would you do?" And I was like, "Well, you know, I would take this trip, and then I would like." I would have, I would renovate my upstairs bathroom. <laughs> like, I got some time to the list. And she was like, that is the saddest. Thing. <laughs> I was like, I so, would buy um, my, you know, I would buy my mom a nicer, you know, like there's some stuff she wants done to her house. <laughs> you should be like, really? That's what you came up with? I was like, kind of basic. So two things. One, um, you should have come to Prague with me after college because the great thing about, we used to go to spend a lot of time in the casinos there. They were very eager to have like young American men who is the way Europeans gamble is much more staid and quiet <laughs> and contemplative. And these new casinos that opened up in Prague in the early nineties, late eighties, they, they wanted to make it more of a club atmosphere. And so like getting a bunch of like dudes who just have fun with it and drink a lot, um, they fed us free food and free booze all night long and all that kind of stuff. It was great. So we went to casinos a lot. But the best thing about it was you could do this arbitrage where you played blackjack all night and the minimum bet was, I think, 40 crowns, which back then was 20 cents or something like that. Or maybe it was 120 crowns and it was like, but it was like 40 cents, right? right? So the great thing was if you had a really bad night and Therefore, you lost like a really bad, like just took a bath. You lost 40 bucks. But if you had a really great night, you kept it in crowns and you could eat for a week off of it. So it was really kind of like a win-win because like the 40 yeah. bucks paid for all the booze and staying oh, up and having a good time. It was a cheap night out, out on the town in American dollars. And if you won, it was like uh, you were one of the richest guys in Prague. So it was like, it was just fantastic. I remember going to Atlantic City. So one of uh, a guy I dated briefly his grandfather had been a heavy roller. High roller, high roller. High roller. Um, Could have been heavy too, but yeah. But I mean, like, and I think it I think it had caused some problems. I think like maybe he had lost significant, you know, like a house or something. But he had the same name as his grandfather. And I guess back then the casinos were not as good at like Oh, and, so they thought he was a whale? So they thought he was a whale. So <laughs> the fact he's like 22. So, so we could go and we would get like a free hotel room. Oh, and if awesome. you could, I, I don't think it would have lasted very long, but he was graduating from, he did anyway, so he didn't care. Um, so you could go, you could drink for free. Um, we get a free hotel room. And then if you're, if you gamble, like we gamble, which is like, maybe you lost $20, maybe you're up 150. Like it was a, it was a cash flow positive, um, like over, over the course of the few months that we did this cash flow positive. Oh, that's the other thing I want to say. So like the other thing I always think about or joke about is like, let's say you or I won an $800 million Powerball. You and I both know people in Washington who work for or run 501c3s, whatever, and all that kind of stuff that you may talk to once or twice a year or a decade when you see them at a party or yeah. at some conference or speech or panel or whatever. And I just love to think about how quickly my phone would start ringing yes. from these people about Jonah. We haven't talked in so long. How the kids? How's your wife? You know, and like totally like oblivious to the fact that I know there's only one reason why they would be calling. 
And I made this point once in front of Arthur Brooks and he was just like, dude, I'm the first call. I'm calling you. I mean, like, let's just, let's establish that right now. I'm calling you. And there's going to be no pretense to it. It was just fair because it's Arthur Brooks. But yes. like, like a lot of heads of think tanks that probably don't like me would all of a sudden be like, we really should have him come over and give a talk kind of thing. Be kind of fun. Yeah, it would be fun. Like, I, I would like to see how far, how deep I could go into the pool of people who really loathe me. Right? Like, <laughs> exactly. No, that's right. It's like, how many people, like, if all of a sudden, like, the this new head of Heritage, who I'm highly critical of, would he all of a sudden be like, you know, I might disagreements with Goldberg, but man, he makes some good points. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we should really, we should really talk about that. I want to, I want to um, hear about your vision for the Republican Party. <laughs> what would you do? Yeah. Um, since we stumbled into the Republican Party in the, in the little time that we have left, you and I see pretty much eye to eye, I think, on the problems that the Republican Party has. Um, uh, I think you and I are both very sympathetic to the kind of policies that we think would be good for the Republican Party to embrace. And, um, and there are people who embrace it, but they, um, they don't advertise it very much. So anyway, uh, the rank, for the rank punditry portion, just how are you feeling about the GOP? Is nature healing or are we not going to be able to have nice things for another year? Um, so, you know, the, the old saw or young saw, I don't know how old it is, but the, the saw for the last few years in Washington anyway has been that the problem with Democrats is that their donors are crazy and the problem with Republicans is that their voters are crazy. Um, and leave aside whether what those groups want is good for society. Those groups are so far that the the Republican primary voter and the Democratic donor base are so far from the center, from the median voter, and they are unaware of that fact. They and so they press the party, the staffers. You know, Democrats have a problem with their staffers and their donors. The Republicans, staffers and donors, understand what the public will put up with, and the primary voters don't. And so they nominate people. Um, you know, I won't say like Carrie Lake because I actually thought that Carrie Lake, when I was in Arizona in October, everyone, everyone, and these were not Republicans, were, was convinced she was going to win. So she, you know, she looked like she looked quite viable to me um, and turned out not to be. But I can understand how how primary voters made that mistake. But there were a bunch of other mistakes that they made that were crazy and where they lost um, and where they have now empowered Democrats relative to Republicans, right? Um, and this has been a historic problem, right? If you look at the in in at multiple points, Republicans, for example, had the opportunity to severely stop or curtail Obamacare, and instead they nominated senator senatorial candidates who couldn't win, and they you know and then Ted Cruz at the moment when Obamacare is melting down. Right. So this is the one moment of all moments when Republicans have, this is in 2013 when the exchanges don't work. Republicans have a priceless and tiny window in which they could have made this enough of an issue to force the administration to back down on key stuff, to delay stuff, et cetera. And once you've delayed it, because once it's in place, it's really hard to get rid of. Delay is your friend, right? Delay, delay, delay. Hope that, you know, you can delay to pass the point where you get into power and can kill this, right? Ted Cruz instead decides to, to spend two weeks grandstanding about like shutting down the government. So Ted Cruz, because, and, and like his, I'm sure his, his, his donor, like his primary voter base 
ate that up because they had no idea. They don't understand how any of this works, right? They just like seeing him stick it to the man. Um, but I think looking at, and, and a lot of that, of course, the huge Trump energy there, and the fact that those voters are now actually in polls seem to be leaning to Santos. It doesn't tell me that like I agree with these people more. It tells me that they have they are getting a more realistic appreciation of who is likely to win an election. Right? And that is good. That is healthy for the Republican Party to be able to for their their primary voters to just be able to see like I can't do this because the public disagrees with me. And now does this last? <laughs> Do we know? I don't know. Does this like a temporary? Is it that they, but Trump cost them a bunch of Senate seats that they could have, insh- a bunch of, you know, House Senate seats that they could have and should have won, um, governor seats. And they seem to have figured that out, which means, and they seem to be punishing him for it. And that to me is a good sign. That is like nature healing. But at the same time, we are now watching. Kevin McCarthy in this big leadership fight in Congress, there is no viable alternative. It is totally unclear what the point of all of this is, except to have drama and split the caucus. And so in that sense, I think there is still a, a long time to go. Um, and of course, you know, you guys, you you listeners know uh, whether he managed to pull it out, what happened, I have no idea. It's a, right. you know, but it's in the future. Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts? Is, is nature healing? Yeah, no, I, I think, I mean, my standalone for a little while now has been like, I don't know if it's how much more likely it is that Trump goes away, but it's much more possible than yeah. it's ever been, right? I mean, like, it's just the path seems open and wide and clear. And listening to you talk about it, uh, it occurs to me that one way to think about the primary, about this last election, is that the G- the national GOP electorate is becoming more like the Georgia GOP electorate, yeah. right? So Georgia was uh, was inoculated early. Um, because Trump cost them two Senate seats <laughs> um, in that January five, you know, runoff or whatever it was, January six runoff, and and that's why Kemp and Raffensperger and those guys could run. They're not squishes. They're not rhinos. They're not you know whatever. They're just not liars and they're not crazy. And the, because Trump meddled and screwed up in Georgia um, twice now. Twice now. Let, yeah. let, let, so let like, us uh, let's all take a moment and uh, and uh, R.I.P. Herschel Walker. Yeah, and so it's like the most right wing electric that isn't Trumpy, in a, in a in a statistical sense, right? Obviously, there are going to be some very serious Trumpy people in Georgia. How could there not be? But like as a as a voting measure, I mean, Kemp beat Stacey Abrams what, five eight points, something yeah. like that, right? Raffensperger, and these are two. I mean, other than Liz Cheney, who did Trump hate more than Kemp and Raffensperger? And um, and so maybe the GOP electorate around the country is sort of becoming like the Georgia electorate. They like the Trumpy stuff, um, but there's like, can't go with that guy again. And um, I was thinking about, um, you know, there were these focus groups at the beginning of um, about a year ago um, uh, that, um, what's your name? Uh, the Republican accountability project did. And, um, uh, one of the interesting things is in the focus group is that people, a lot of, these were all pro-Trump, serious MAGA voters. And um, 
a lot of them were like, you know, the, one of the big problems with, with Trump is he'd only, he could only be president for one term and DeSantis could be president for two terms, which is like very low on my list of reasons why <laughs> one shouldn't vote for Trump, but I get it. And I think that kind of pragmatism kind of emerging is again, a sign that things are getting better. Um, if rumors are true that Mitch Daniels might run for president, seeing what his, what the GOP's response to him is, um, will be a really good tell, you know, and it could be a very sad tell. So one question I have is, you know, the open question for people like you and me, are the problems with the Republican Party that the Republican Party was always very different from what we thought it was and is something that I will never be able to support? Or is it Trump? And I actually lean towards a lot of the, it's Trump. Um, in part because I think we really, everyone who's in politics just way overestimates how consistent voters are ideologically by a lot, right? They, they tend to think, oh, well, you know, they support X, Y, and Z, and that's why they nominated Trump. And like, it's not that, it's, it's often just much weirder than that, right? For one thing, he was a celebrity. And if you look at Trump, like a lot of people were just like, oh, I loved him on The Apprentice. That was literally what if, when you polled people, um, you know, he, he did much better among people who watched The Apprentice. Um, part of that may be demographic, but actually a lot of it was just like, they felt like he was their friend. He was, a, you know, it's these parasocial relationships that you establish with celebrities. Um, and I think that Trump was just uniquely bad in a lot. My, my worst problems with the Republican Party you know, aren't anything on policy. It is that he really did, has gotten them to attack democracy itself, right? And so he as a person in terms of being a pul impulsive and vulgar and all the rest of it um, was a deal breaker. But also the stuff that he got people to do in terms of, you know, pretending he had, he had actually won an election he lost, Sound, at least pretending to be open to undoing the results of that election through some sort of weird procedural chicanery. That stuff was deeply, that's the stuff that I think that's Trump. I actually, I don't think that that is like deep in the Republican Party or I don't think it's deeper than it is in the Democratic Party. The Demo, you know, Democratic elites are certainly willing to push as far as they can to questioning the, the results of legitimate uh, elections. I give you Stacey Abrams and and all of the people who pretended that there was any, that, that what she was saying was anything other than dangerous balderdash. Um, but, that, but Trump was just willing to go farther than anyone. I don't think DeSantis would do that. I don't think almost anyone else would, right? He was willing to do stuff that no one else was, partly because he just doesn't, he, he's amoral and he doesn't even have a kind of mannered objection to, he doesn't even want to pretend to, you know, be a, a more decent person than he's willing to act like, right? Um, he doesn't want to do it in secret. He just does it openly. He plays with fire in a way that no other, or no other major politician in the Republican Party, as far as I can tell, would personally initiate. They, some of them were cravenly willing, and many of them, too many of them, were cravenly willing to entertain this, this, this dangerous nonsense. Um, but they, they, they wouldn't have done it if they'd been in his position. And I think that's an important difference. And so in that sense, I think, you know, if they get rid of Trump, a lot of, there's a lot of nature is healing energy. I will still have big differences with them, with the direction that the party is going um, in terms of a lot of populism, in terms of a lot of policy stuff, et cetera. Um, but 
that would be a huge start for me. But then there's another story that like, no, this is just, you know, he is just exemplifying a an underlying problem. He is a symptom, not a cause. I think he's a cause, but I'm interested to know what you think. Yeah, I think it's a both and thing, right? Um, uh, Russ Roberts in his um, book, Wild Problems, he, he, he talks about the vampire problem, which is a, it's similar to the red pill thing, right? Where basically it's like, if, if, if I propose to you, you becoming a vampire, it may sound like um, a good idea or a bad idea, you know, depending upon your moral framework and all the rest. But once you become a vampire, you automatically think it's great being a vampire. Your old moral <laughs> preferences, your old moral right. desires vanish, right? And that's, and, and he does, Russ doesn't mean it in a, in a particularly negative way. He's just talking about how there are certain decisions in life that transform you. Right. And that you cannot really know what you'll think about it because you'll be a different person by doing it. You know, parenthood is obviously a huge one. Marriage is a huge one. Um, certain jobs, all that kind of stuff. Right. It's just like you have to just jump in. You can make you can do some rational calculation, but at the end of the day, it's kind of a Kierkegaardian leap of faith kind of thing. And this is a long way of saying that I think, you know, one of my big problems with a lot, a lot of punditry particularly liberal punditry, particularly liberal historical punditry, is they treat various demographics as if they are static and, and eternal groupings. When in fact, like if you look at the data on generations, generations' attitudes change over yeah. time. So you can't talk about how, well, he captured the evangelicals because you know what an evangelical believed in 1960 is going to be different than what an evangelical believed in 1965 and in 1970 and treating them as just sort of static inputs in a widget factory is just is is a bad understanding of things and um and i think that there was a lot of this sub rosa i think i inoculated myself to some of it because i was way out in front of everybody in the in the 2000s with like liberal fascism and all that kind of stuff and i saw where the the lines are in a way that I could pull back. And, um, and then you look at people like Dinesh and all these others who just barreled past the lines. And I think that Trump in some ways was a vamp created a vampire problem for the GOP where once you do and say terrible things, once you do and say irresponsible things and embrace irresponsible policies, um, it's very difficult to go back. Like um, the GOP could recognize tomorrow that Trumpism is a loser and become responsible. But like the, the, the stuff that the Heritage Foundation has bought into is going to take years to reverse, right? People are bought into certain positions. Um, Dinesh can never come back. You know, he's a vampire now, right? There are a bunch of these people, a bunch of these institutions that um, in order to maintain their own integrity such as it is um in order to maintain their own consistency um have to stick with their garbage i mean like tucker cannot un unring the bell of what he's become and and this is about uh, yuval and i had a long conversation about this a while back and, and i think one of the best episodes of the remnant where he's talking about where we were, we were both talking about how cynicism is very difficult to sustain and eventually people convince themselves that they were right. Yeah. 
And like you look at someone like Eric Metaxas, you know, he's, he's a vampire, he's, he's red-pilled, whatever you want to call it. He cannot come back and start scolding people like me for going, you know, for going too far, right? He is stuck. These people are stuck, bought into a bunch of ideas and a bunch of populist orientations that I think institutionally, at the very least, are going to make them a faction within the GOP. They're going to be very difficult to deal with for a very long time, particularly if the larger, saner faction doesn't start seeing itself as a faction that is willing to wield power in a serious way. So I think that that's right. Uh, like one thing that yeah, I think we would both agree on, like there's path dependence, right? Right. Is that quitting smoking is not the same thing as never having smoked. Mm-hmm. Um, and similarly, quitting Trump will not be the same thing as never having had Trump. I think he has done real sustained damage to the party um, and to individuals within the party um, and that that's a real problem. That said, I also think that like there are two models that you can have of how this ends. And one is that people realize they were wrong and they try to come back from it. And I don't think that's what's going to happen because I don't think that ever happens. What I think happens though is that people just agree not to talk about it. And then they slowly move back to where they should be. And and this is really like phenomenally disappointing for people because look, I mean, you and I certainly have been in these fights and I've got some mad stored up. I'm sure you have some mad stored up too. No. And they have some mad stored up in me, right? They got quite a lot of mad stored up in me. I hear about it a lot. Um, but like, that's never going to get worked out. It's mm-hmm. just going to be kind of like a, you know, a marriage where you go through a bad patch. Um, not our marriages, obviously, but I've, I've read. Um, <laughs> and you go through a bad patch and it isn't that like you fix everything. It's that you just kind of, you fix some stuff and then the rest of it, you just agree that like, you know what? Like, we don't talk about that period anymore. We like, we, we, we've moved past it. We're not going to bring it up in every fight. It's not going to be like, oh, and remember the time that you, this is just going to be a thing that we both know happened and that was bad and we're going to move beyond it. And that's how, and you know, like people on the left are, they, they are hungry for the, the, the sobbing movie, movie moment where all of these people either fall on their knees and sob and apologize for how wrong they were and or are shuffled off in handcuffs. And neither of those things is going to happen. Like all of this stuff with like releasing Trump's tax returns, it's just revenge at this point, right? It's not, there's no, he's a private citizen. There's no public policy interest that is served. Now, if he runs again, you want to release them then. I mean, like I understand they don't have control, but like, this is not actually a, a huge moment, a, a huge question of public policy. I frankly don't think it ever was. I think that this was a trivial sideshow for people who just wanted to gawk at his tax returns. Um, I don't think we've learned a, a whole heck of a lot that anyone who voted for him would be surprised by. But, you know, there's not going to be that moment. You're not going to get... Also the problem, there's also This is part of the vampire problem thing, right? Is like there are people who insisted to me that, oh, he's a billionaire, he's paid millions in taxes. Five years ago, six years ago. Yeah. And I would say, well, that's a lie. He's not a lie. Of course it's... And now they know it's a lie and they just don't care. Yeah. Right? It's like, it's like the, in order to maintain their, their, their sense of consistency, they've changed their standards to fit the man rather than making the man fit to the standard. And, and it's not worth arguing about at this point, except because it just basically boils down to, and I told you so, 
Yeah. And then they respond, well, you were naive. Of course, we didn't really believe all of that. Um, and, and then you go back to cutting yourself. Yeah, like the, the number of people who argued with me that he was a competent businessman. Like he's, I mean, I will, in some low animal cunning sense, this is true. He is good at cheating people and he has been good at branding, right? Mm -hmm. He is, and he has, I would say, he's like the world's best A-B tester because he's totally shameless. And so he is willing to say something and then like, tomorrow, if that didn't work, he'll try something else, right? He'll right. slap his name on anything you can find if there's money in it and all the rest of it. And like, that is a kind of being good at business, but it's not the kind that's useful for being president, for actually running a country, right? It is zero transferable skills. Um, and yeah, like, I'm not going to argue about it anymore. I'm just like, I'm done with that. But it's also like, I don't care. You know what? You want to think I was wrong? Fine. You think I was wrong for the rest of my life. And I just, I would like the country to move past Donald Trump because I don't think there's ever like the the hope that there's going to be some moment where we like symbolically exercise him. It's not going to happen. And waiting for that is just self-destructive. It is just, it's miring yourself in the past. The only thing you can do with Trump is leave him. Leave him behind, let the dead past bury its, its, its dead. There is no better resolution. There is no moment where we all as a nation realize, like maybe in 75 years, or maybe in 75 years, he'll be like Warren Harding. And in fact, no one will friggin' remember. It'll be like a trivia question. Who was, who was, in, which president was impeached twice? And the only, only people who know are going to be the nerd who sits in the back of class, if indeed there are classes in 20, 75 years, right? If we're not all living in our AI, VR pods. Um, it's, it's just not, like, I, I think that the sense of some world historical moment where we're going to hold the Nuremberg trials and finally, it, no, it's never going to happen. You, just, you have to accept you know, that. I, and, I, I, sadly, I agree because I want the Hollywood ending, but it's not going to happen. And, I, yeah, I, look, I would like the Hollywood ending too, but I also like, I have a certain amount of like, I just, in a way, the Hollywood ending, the people who I really disagree with and I think may have made mistakes, I would just like them to unmake the mistake, right? Like, I just... And if I, I don't want them to get stuck in it, I don't want us to get stuck in it. I'm, I'm like, I'm an, an unusually though, I have a very hard time holding grudges. I can I have a terrible temper in the moment. I'm a horrible human being when I'm mad, but I'm mad for like an hour and then I'm, I'm done with it. And I realized that this is an unusual set of preferences and, and, and very possibly counterproductive. So. Also, by the way, in 75 years, we will be all required to begin in class by saying our forefathers, the Han Chinese, um, <laughs> which is a, a deep cut to Algerian French uh, colonialism. Anyway, I, I would love to continue, but uh, I normally will happily eat into my time to go to an editorial meeting. But uh, news broke. I mean, I knew about it. Uh, you may not know about it uh, while we were recording about David French is moving to the New York Times as a columnist. Oh, wow. And so we're having an internal conversation about it now. So I'm going to cut this short because I feel like I should be on that meeting. Yeah, well, I'm, 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 uh, I'm sorry for the loss of David French, but congratulations, New York Times. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, we're, I'm happy for David. I'm happy for the Times. He made the decision very, very reluctantly, but... You know, it was an understandable decision given all of the givens. It's not like we could get into a bidding war with the with the Times, and um, and then he didn't do it for the money anyway. Right. Anyway, leave it it's to him a, to you explain reach it an all. It's a different audience to reach as someone who you know. But uh, anyway, I should get on that call. Yeah, I want to say, Megan, thank you so much for doing this. I 
continue to insist that you be a regular on this podcast because you're one of my favorite people. I would love that. I was uh, one of my favorite podcasts ever to be on and to listen to. So, okay. So, um, that was a little weird. Um, I had to leave the podcast to go do this editorial meeting where we talked to the staff about David, uh, French, uh, mostly leaving the dispatch. He's going to go to the New York times as a columnist. I'm very happy for him. It's great for the New York times. Um, it's a very bittersweet for everybody. Um, he'll be sorely, sorely missed. I think he was a, just, I mean, first of all, he's a very close friend is a great value add. He's an honorable and, and decent guy in every respect. And, um, and just, it's, it's, he's someone who can't be replaced. Um, and we're not going to try, you know, whoever, whoever, you know, we're going to, we have lots of hires coming down the pike at the dispatch. Um, but, um, there's only one David French and, you know, I make a lot of jokes with him about how he's dead to me. And I refer to him in the meetings as, you know, that other guy. Um, but the truth is, is that, um, it's, it's a pretty heartbreaking departure. Um, but there'll be more to talk about that. We're going to do dispatch live, which will become a podcast. We'll talk about all of that. It's not happening overnight. David, um, is going to remain on advisory opinions podcast, which I think is great. And he'll be joining dispatch lives in the future. And he's going to remain friends of the dispatch forever. And, you know, and, and, and should the, uh, internal Jacobins at the New York times, uh, you know, purge him, uh, you know, we would love to have him back. So, um, we'd also love to have Megan McArdle and I love having her on the podcast again. Um, I think she's just, uh, great to talk to. And, um, I had points that I wanted to summarize from the podcast, like our conversation, but I can't remember what they are now because I'm recording this like 45 minutes later. Um, but, um, I have, um, um, ambitions for 2023 about, re-engaging with a whole bunch of work stuff that I was a little absent for, for the last few months because of all the drama, um, and tragedy with my mom, um, and other things. So, uh, here's to a much better 2023. Um, and if you can, uh, become a member or subscriber of the dispatch, uh, it helps us enormously. I'm going to be sending out a, um, what we call internal conversion letter to the um, people who subscribe to the free version of the G file um, on the assumption that at least some of them um, are interested in um, are, are, are open to the idea of becoming subscribers to the, um, uh, the dispatch and to, you know, the, the, the full spectrum G file. So with that, uh, thanks again for everybody who's listening. Um, and um, I'll see you next time. Uh, no, you won't. This is a podcast. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.